This is probably going to be a really short dollop because I have no time to write anything. My plan was to spend the train journey writing, but when I got on the train, the seats were all taken. Last week, I managed to write a dollop from the train with no free seats by finding some space underneath the luggage rack and then sitting on the floor with my laptop on my crossed legs. But this train was too packed even to afford me any floor seating space, so I had to stand while people jostled for space, rubbing themselves against me. So, it wasn't all bad then. I then had to wait at the station for my connecting train. I searched for a seat, but they were all taken. I needed somewhere to sit so that I could get my laptop out and hurriedly write today's dollop. I found a narrow metal bar. It wasn't very comfortable. It was angled so that I kept nearly falling off it, but bloggers can't be choosers. That's a good line, I thought. Something which I'm sure you're all thinking right now. I must remember to write it in today's dollop. So I got out my laptop to make a note of my hilarious play on words and to make a start on the blog, but it was impossible. The bar was too angled and the laptop kept falling off my lap. I would have to wait until I got on the next train, where I would have just half an hour to write something. The next train did have seats free, but when I sat down, a new problem presented itself. There were no double seats free, only seats next to someone, or shared table seats. I opted for one of the table seats, and was about to pull out my laptop when, lovely day for it, came the elderly posh-sounding voice of the man on the seat opposite me. I think you'll agree. I conveyed an elderly posh-sounding voice very well there. Lovely day for it, came the elderly posh-sounding voice of the man on the seat opposite me. I wasn't sure exactly what the it was that it was a lovely day for, but I didn't have time to get into a discussion about it. So, I muttered my agreement as politely as I could. But the trouble is that I am too polite and self-conscious to snub someone's invitation for a conversation. So, despite needing to get immediately to work on the dollop, I nevertheless was unable to merely give a non-committed grunt, indicating to the man my disinterest in talking to him. Instantly, I felt awkward and guilty about my lacklustre response to his friendly. Lovely day for it. And my next course of action was to do all I could to redress my initial weak offering. Even though I knew that if I didn't get this dollop written on the train, then I would have to do it while I was out, and thus be extremely antisocial. But I'd be being antisocial with close friends, and that, for some reason, doesn't make me feel as uncomfortable as ignoring a complete stranger's small talk. My brain was sending me messages that this man and everyone else in the carriage was now looking at me and judging me as a dull, antisocial misery. It was now up to me to save the situation, turn it around and show them that I was no such thing. Yes, my friend, I said with piles of enthusiasm. It certainly is. So, I clapped my hands. I didn't have to tell you that because I clapped my hands in real life. Obviously, on the written version, I can't really do that, but I just clapped my hands. I don't even have to read out and clap my hands. But you might have thought the clap wasn't intentional. I want you to know that it very much was. I'm reading Braille as well, so I had to clap my hands and then I had to quickly go back to the braille and read me saying I clap my hands so I mean you don't see behind the scenes here what goes on but it's uh, it's quite impressive and I was quite uh, pretty dexterous there hands on the braille reading straight away clap back onto the braille no messing yes my friend I said with piles of enthusiasm it certainly is so I clap my hands to where are you bound my friend I jovially intoned no now I've gone too far the other way I was sounding far too energetic and excitable for a casual bit of small talk with a stranger on a train I tried to compensate for my earlier taciturn response but had clearly overcompensated I'd been far too loud and energetic called him my friend twice which was a bit desperate and clapped my hands why am I clapped my hands And why did I say, so, to where are you bound? Who says, to where are you bound? Where are you off to, then? Would have been more conventional, rather than loudly inquiring, to where are you bound, my friend? With great relish. 
I'd also employed a weird sing-song posh accent. I've no idea why. Maybe I thought it gave me a more cheery, friendly manner. But actually, it just made me sound odd. The man told me to where he was bound, and then we fell into conversation. I instantly decided to ditch the weird posh sing-song voice, assuming that he'd soon forget about it once he'd become distracted by my scintillating conversation. Scintillating it wasn't. My mind was on the dollop, and the fact that I was going to have to somehow write it while I was out and ignore my friends. I've no idea how we got onto the topic, but he was talking about the fact that he had to buy a new pair of socks, because when he woke up this morning, he discovered that there was a hole in one of them. I then became aware of the sound of my own voice, saying, Yeah, I always get holes in my socks. I don't know how it happens. I don't remember them having a hole in when I take them off, but when I put them back on again, then there's a hole. What the hell was I blabbering on about? Both me and the man gave almost identical, timid, joyless laughs. <laughs> it was like that. We both did that. The readers will just have to use their own imagination there. You got a, a unique insight there. I bet you're glad you listened to the audio version now. I'm not sure why we laughed. It wasn't very funny what I'd said, but I suppose it just felt like the right thing to do. If he'd have said the story about waking up to find a hole in his sock, and then I'd countered with, Oh, Darn it. Then that would have been very different. Then we'd have had a good reason to laugh. But I was being altogether too dull for that kind of hilarious wordplay. I wondered what the people near must have been thinking of us. They must have thought we were the most boring people on the planet. I accept that you were thinking that right now, having just listened to this dollop. I did say that it was going to be a short dollop, though, didn't I? And it was actually over a thousand words long. I checked my emails. I was still in bed. This was another of my delaying tactics to gain me a bit longer before I got up. I'd already checked Twitter, Facebook, The Guardian and The Huffington Post, replied to dollop comments from adoring fans. Hello, by the way. I also checked my emails when I originally woke up, but that was an hour ago, so I could do with giving the inbox another quick check. And then I'll definitely get up, I reasoned. I opened my new email. Morning, David. Alex here. Just to let you know that we are ready to implement Phase 2. Details below. I look forward to your response, plus any news that you have about the villa. Ah, that's nice. Excellent news. Good old Alex. Hang on, who is Alex? And what does he mean by Phase 2? Is he referring to my dollop from a few days ago, entitled Eaglebot Phase 1, where I suggested that there are many recordings on the internet of me speaking with this daily blog and such, that if I ever found myself in a similar situation to Stephen Hawking, then I could have a specially programmed voice, which would be my actual voice, rather than the synthetic Stephen Hawking voice. This would also be rather practical, especially when I'm communicating with any of my blind friends, as they would know that it was me talking, rather than getting confused and thinking that they were chatting to Stephen Hawking. Maybe Alex was a computer programmer who had gotten to work on my project uploaded the recordings of my voice, saying various words, into the database, and now he'd reached the stage where he was ready to implement Phase 2, whatever that was. But it sounded exciting, almost as exciting as one of my anecdotes about socks. I was a bit puzzled by the line, I look forward to your response, plus any news about the villa. If this computer programmer had managed to create a prototype of the Eagle Bot and then send news about it to me via an email, then presumably he would be able to use the internet. So why couldn't he get his own football news? I assumed he was referring to Aston Villa Football Club. Perhaps he was emailing from somewhere like China, and the government, for some reason, had blocked the googling of Aston Villa, and this poor computer programmer was bereft of news about his chosen English football club. 
I don't know why the Chinese government would be concerned about their citizens finding information about Aston Villa, but I am merely a British folk singer and blogger. I am not clued up about Chinese government policy, and to be honest, it wasn't an area I wanted to be interfering in. I was unsure of how to proceed. Obviously, I wanted to know more about this man's work on the Eagle Bot, but was it worth making an enemy of the Chinese government? I read the rest of the email, wondering what the details below would reveal. It soon became clear that the email was not intended for me, but for the other David Eagle. The other David Eagle runs something called a design consultancy company in Stoke. It's something to do with the designing of buildings, so the reference in this email to the villa was about an actual villa, as opposed to Aston Villa. I've been getting lots of this David Eagle's emails since the start of last year. It started from an email from one of David Eagle's clients, wanting his input on some attached floor plan drawings. I emailed back to let him know that I was very ill-qualified to help him in this regard, given my lack of knowledge regarding floor plans and due to being unable to see the drawings because of being blind. I got an email back, apologising, saying that he must have taken down the email address incorrectly. But the seed had now been planted, for there were about another 50 people copied into his first email to me, and their computer had presumably saved the email address, meaning that every time someone went to email David Eagle, they got me instead. Over the next few weeks, I replied to so many emails, requesting advice about various attached drawings and documents, and I received a whole host of questions. And often, there would be other people copied into the message, and so the chain grew, and I got more and more emails. The weeks went on, and I amassed quite the collection of confidential documents, invoices, contact details, information about business deals. I considered getting in touch with the rival design consultancy team and seeing how much money they'd cough up for access to all of this information about their competition. I kept replying to them and explaining that they'd got the wrong email address, but the emails just kept coming and coming. Then, after a couple of months of this, I finally got an email from the other David Eagle. What the email said is something that I shall divulge to you tomorrow. Oh yes, my friends, a cliffhanger. Although, to be honest, this cliffhanger is born more out of the fact that I am falling asleep at the computer rather than it signifying anything of dramatic value to come. Yesterday I mentioned that I frequently receive emails intended for another David Eagle, a design consultant from Stoke. I try emailing everyone back, explaining that they've got the wrong David Eagle, but this is quite an undertaking, because David Eagle, the design consultant from Stoke, gets a hell of a lot of emails. Well, actually, I'm not sure how many emails he gets, but I receive a lot of emails on his behalf. But my efforts don't seem to do anything to stem the flood, and more and more emails keep coming in. But then, a few months ago, I finally received an email from the other... David Eagle. His email address was the same as mine, except for one letter. He said that he'd heard that a few emails intended for him had come to me, and wondered whether I could forward them on to him. A few emails? There were hundreds of the bloody things. He also asked if I could forward any future emails straight to him, and he would respond to them, letting them know that they'd emailed the wrong person. I don't think that the other David Eagle was prepared for the amount of emails that I forwarded him. I trawled through my inbox for his emails, and began forwarding on to him. It took me hours. There was no shortcut that I could think of. I just had to click on each email in turn, and then forward that email email to him. I was potentially saving his business here. Each email was potentially rescuing thousands of pounds worth of work, which might never have been gained if it wasn't for my act of altruism. If I'd have been more savvy, I would have done a bit of haggling and tried to wangle a fee for my half day's work, but I am far too soft and nice, and so I just forwarded him every single email and agreed to forward him all future missent messages. The other David Eagle replied with his thanks, his apologies, and expressed surprise by the sheer volume of emails. 
Over the coming weeks, the emails kept pouring in, and I would forward each one to the other David Eagle. At the start, he would respond with a thanks, but after a while, he stopped responding. I received a couple of emails over Christmas for him, so I forwarded them on to him with a little friendly Christmas message, telling him that these were his Christmas presents from me. I didn't get anything back. I then got another email for him a few days later, which I forwarded to him, and told him that because he'd been so good this year, I was giving him two Christmas presents. He clearly wasn't interested in my attempts to engage in such idle banter. I continued forwarding his emails to him regardless, in spite of his lack of gratitude or even acknowledgement, because that's the kind of nice person that I am. Without me, he might never know his villa project was ready to have Phase 2 implemented, and he might be just sat there at his desk twiddling his thumbs, wondering why Phase 1 was taking so damn long. Recently, I got an email for the other David Eagle from a company who had booked a posh hotel for him, and breakfast included, and it was all paid for by this company. All the information about the booking reference and the people who had booked it was included in the email. I could have gone to that hotel, handed over the details, pretended to be the other David Eagle, and had a free stay and a breakfast. But, because I am nice, I forwarded the details to the intended David Eagle. And did I get a thank you? No. If this ungrateful silence from the other David Eagle continues, then I may have to ask you all who are reading this to email david at davidmeagle.co.uk and send him loads of dollar-related references, as if you thought you were emailing me. And we'll see how he likes it. And we'll see if he has the decency to forward the emails to me. I don't think this David Eagle realises who he might be potentially making an enemy of here. I have the power to instruct my army of readers to never use David Eagle from Stoke's design consultancy services, ever. Yeah, and this could have disastrous consequences for David Eagle's business. After all, I have at least 200 people reading and listening to this. So think on that, David. And there's a chance that maybe one or two of these people might have needed some design consultancy work doing. And maybe they might have come to you. But not now, David. So, as you can see, you don't want to be making an enemy out of me. A thank you costs nothing, but a lack of a thank you could end up costing you dearly. It's a shame to start warring with one of my namesakes, but you are forcing my hand, David Eagle. I've stopped putting little jocular messages in forwards now, because it's clear that you're not up for bantering, and that's fine. But a thank you would be nice. And I don't even require a thank you for every single email, but just once in a while would be nice. We David Eagles have a reputation to uphold, and this lack of common courtesy is not doing the David Eagle name any favours. I'm writing this after our gig at Bromyard Folk Festival. We'd been warned by some of the other performers who'd played over the weekend that the stage had an infestation of spiders. A few singers had apparently inhaled some of the spiders. This was done accidentally, obviously, because they were singing and the spiders were crawling over the microphone. I'd only thinking that there's some weird craze amongst folk performers to get high by snorting insects. I want to make it clear that neither me or the other two young'uns have ever tried to get high by snorting insects. Sticking insects up your bottom, maybe, but certainly not snorting. So I'm glad we cleared that up. The warnings proved accurate, for on a few occasions I had to wipe cobwebs from the mic. There are times in various songs where I put my mouth right onto the microphone in order to amplify the bass notes and give it extra resonance. Despite the fact that I was potentially going to be inhaling spiders, I still put my mouth right onto the microphone. This is the mark of a true professional. I was willing to risk choking to death on spiders for the good of the performance. And I am such a professional that even if I was choking to death on spiders, I would of course choke to death in rhythm, possibly even adding some rasping in the correct key. This incident reminded me of the song I Know an Old Lady Who Swallowed a Fly. I know an old lady who swallowed a fly I don't know why she swallowed a fly Perhaps she'll die 
This song is flawed on so many levels. He says that he knows an old lady, which suggests that the lady is still alive. He also says, perhaps she'll die, which denotes that the lady is still alive at the time of the song's inception. Presumably then, the person writing this song is with the lady while she is swallowing this crazy cocktail of animals. Yet rather than intervening and saving this woman's life, he instead chooses to write a song about the unfolding insanity. This old woman is clearly a congenitally woeful decision maker. She's chosen a friend who stands idly by writing songs while she dies, and she makes a series of massively ill-informed choices, which essentially leads to her inevitable death. I'm also confused by her friend's reasoning. He doesn't know why she swallowed the fly. Presumably, it was just an accident, unless he knows that she deliberately swallowed the fly. But even so, I don't think the swallowing of the fly is the major incident here. But despite the old lady's decision to swallow a spider to catch the fly, swallow a bird to catch the spider, swallow a cat to catch the bird, and despite observing the old lady's great discomfort and mind-boggling stupid actions in a desperate attempt to remedy her situation, he nevertheless keeps going back to the fact that he doesn't know why she swallowed the fly. Forget the bloody fly, she's just swallowed a dog. Do something, you idiot. Don't just sit there pontificating about why she swallowed the fly. The fly is inconsequential. This old lady's friend seems to have a severely warped sense of perspective. She swallowed the fly, which causes him to remark that perhaps she'll die. Why would she die? It's only a fly. But then when the old lady swallows the spider, his reaction is exactly the same. He expresses his confusion as to why she swallowed the fly, and then restates, perhaps she'll die. He retains the same level of concern throughout the entire ordeal, even though she starts swallowing cats and dogs. The lady is clearly getting more and more desperate as the situation progresses. Even though her first few ingestions were ill-advised, at least they made some sort of sense. Spiders eat flies, birds eat spiders, cats eat birds. But then she clearly goes all to pot and makes increasingly weird choices. She swallows a dog, but dogs don't eat cats. She swallows a goat, then a cow, then a horse. There is now no semblance of logic. She is presumably hysterical, desperate, and growing increasingly mentally impaired as a result of ingesting all these live animals. The other odd part of the man's account of this event is at the end, when she swallows a horse. She's dead, of course. He doesn't seem overly surprised that she managed to survive swallowing a cat, a dog, a goat and a cow. If I saw an old lady swallowing a cow, a goat, a dog and a cat, I'd be astounded if she was somehow still alive. But if it was me, I'd have intervened at the swallowing of the spider. This man has just seen an old lady swallow a horse, a cow, a goat, a dog and a cat, watch the resultant carnage and subsequent death of an old lady, and yet he still remains impassive. This man, in a way, is guilty of her murder. This old lady has clearly got mental health problems, and this man has failed to intervene, in spite of the fact that he clearly knew what was going to happen if she kept swallowing all these animals. The only explanation as to the man's behaviour is to assume that he, too, has serious mental health problems. This would explain his compulsive journaling, his absurdly apathetic nature, his complete lack of perspective, and inability to offer rational and practical assistance to his friend. So, this begs the question, why were these two severely mentally ill people unsupervised? This raises many concerns about their local social services, as these two people clearly needed special attention. I am also confused as to why this old lady has such easy access to so many animals. Presumably she is on a farm. Maybe this is why social services haven't intervened, because they were living in a remote area, away from local resources. Given that she was able to get access to all these farm animals, I assume that they must have been on a farm, because surely this was all happening in a fairly short space of time. Surely this scenario occurred because of a 
series of increasingly desperate attempts to remedy her plight. Surely this wasn't a premeditated series of thought-out solutions that involved her driving across town to find a cow and a goat. I'm doubtful whether she would have had the time or the ability to drive across town to find these animals with a dog and a cat inside her. I think we can safely assume, therefore, that these two people were seriously mentally ill and lived on a remote farm. I wonder what happened to the man, and if his diaries are still in existence. He has an unusually repetitious way of writing, but it'd be interesting to know more about the people behind this tragic story. I might do some digging and see what I can unearth. If anyone has any ideas, and feel free to get in touch. I know I've hit you hard with a lot of thought-provoking ideas about this famous story. It's a lot to swallow, isn't it? Hi David, please find attached a preliminary site layout plan, scale 1500 at A3 size 0. We would be grateful if you could review this regarding the site compound, parking provision and site access. Many thanks and we look forward to hearing from you in due course prior to issuing this formally as part of the tender documentation. Kind regards, Ainsley. This is yet another email which came to me today intended for the other David Eagle, the unresponsive design consultant from Stoke, as mentioned a couple of dollops ago. I've forwarded him loads of emails over the last few months and haven't received a single thank you or even acknowledgement back. I have a good mind to reply to this email and pretend to be the David Eagle that Ainsley thinks I am. Would I be able to get away with it, I wonder? When the email states, we would be grateful if you could review this, how much information do they require? If by review they mean a detailed, considered analysis, then obviously I'd be out of my depth. But if they're just looking for a simple yes or no, then I could surely easily pull off the pretense. Hi, Ainsley. Thanks for the attached drawings. Good choice of scale, by the way. 1500 at A3 size 0 is my personal favourite. You're a man after my own heart. But hey, you're probably married, and uh, it's, it's not professional to flirt on the job. Anyway, everything looks tickety-boo, as we say in the trade. No quibbles from my end, but hey, enough about my end. I promised not to flirt, didn't I? In regards to the site compound, it's a big fat yes from me. I love it. Parking provision is more than ample. As for the site access, you're well and truly barking up the right tree. A tree that no doubt you've conscientiously fitted with a ramp, allowing for easy wheelchair access, because that's the kind of man you are, Ainsley. Normally, I'd write extremely lengthy and detailed reviews, full of all all sorts of complicated and clever technical design consultancy speak, but in this case there's no need for any of that because everything is shipshape. Not literally, obviously, because if he'd actually opted to make the site shipshaped, then I'd be telling you in no uncertain terms what a stupid idea that is. Full steam ahead! In fact, I wouldn't trouble yourself with all that formal, tender documentation nonsense that you refer to in your last email. If I were you, I'd just crack on. No time like the present! P.S. My bank details have changed. Please send my consultancy fee payment to the following bank account. But of course, I didn't send such a reply. I merely forwarded the email to the correct David Eagle as usual, who will presumably fail to respond as usual. Hi again, Ainsley. How many design consultants does it take to change a light bulb? Answer. It is not within a design consultant's remit to administer practical installations. A design consultant is qualified to give advice on the more suitable place to install said light bulb. He may also offer advice about the optimum type of light bulb and light fitting in order to maximise aesthetic value whilst providing a solution that is most energy efficient and cost effective. The design consultant, however, would not be expected or even licensed to offer practical assistance on a site or property. Therefore, it would not be the responsibility or function of a design consultant to change the light bulb. 
A design consultant friend recently told this joke in a speech at a colleague's retirement party, and it brought the house down. Not literally, obviously. We are building design consultants, and therefore would hardly book an unstable structure to hold one of our parties in. I thought that I'd share this joke with my clients, because I know there's a myth that we design consultants don't have a sense of humour. But as you can see, that's just nonsense. Dollop stalwart Mavis Crumble commented on yesterday's dollop, saying, Go on, send it to Ainsley. I dare you. By it, she is referring to my fictional reply to the email that I was sent, which was intended for the other David Eagle, the design consultant from Stoke. Alas, Mavis, I had already responded to Ainsley, alerting him to the fact that he emailed the wrong David Eagle. So, I'm afraid I can't pretend to be the other David Eagle now, and email in my review. It appears that when Ainsley asked for a review of his site layout plan, he was perhaps looking for quite a lot more technical detail than my reply would have offered. Today I received a reply from Mark, who was also copied into Ainsley's email. I'll tell you what Mark had to say in a moment. I know, I'm such a tease. But first, I thought that you might like to cast your critical eye over Ainsley's site layout plan and have a think of any possible areas for improvements. I'll then present you with Mark's evaluation and you can compare your findings to his. Obviously, I know you're listening to the audio version, so you can't look at the photo. Sorry about this. It's not the best dollop for the listeners, but in fairness, I do give you extra bits often that the readers don't get, so it's about time that they had something extra. But you all want to know what Mark says, don't you, so you're not going to stop listening. If you have any ideas to improve this plan, then feel free to send them to me, and I'll happily pass them on to Ainsley. Wouldn't that be a lovely, benevolent thing to do? You never know. If we come up with some good suggestions, then maybe Ainsley might choose to work with us on a regular basis and ditch the services of the other David Eagle. Let's be honest, the other David Eagle doesn't seem to be the quickest at responding, whereas I'm sure that you dollop readers will be much more proactive. Perhaps this could be a way for you to support these dollops financially. Rather than adopting the more traditional model of asking for donations, you could offer support by commenting on the various preliminary site layout plans. Obviously this is something that I couldn't feasibly do by myself, being blind. Then Ainsley would financially remunerate me for the design consultancy work. Perfect plan. So, cast your critical eyes over this and let me know if you have any thoughts. Remember, the scale is 1500 at A3 size 0. And then there's a photo of the site layout plan. So, what do you think? Why not make a few notes and then you can compare your ideas to Mark's? This is kind of like a training exercise for you because we can use Mark's appraisal as an example of the kind of thing to look out for and comment on in the future. Here is what Mark had to say about Ainsley's site layout plan. See if you've spotted any of these. Hi, Ainsley. We will need to show a temporary footwear usable by wheelchairs. The footwear should be slab-surfaced and allow the residents of the bungalow to access the bungalow from the rear door of the existing laundry. It needs to come around by the plant room and around the footprint of the new activity room, allowing a space for scaffold and for services to be redirected around the extension and link to the existing path to the bungalow. Can you show this on the plan? Alex, we will need to amend the PCIP to show this requirement. We need to highlight that site access for spoil removal will cross this temporary footwear, so staff will need to escort the residents to and from the bungalow each morning and night and when they return to the bungalow. The temporary footwear will need plating to protect the footwear. Regards, Mark. So, now you've read Mark's opinions, what do you think? Do you agree or disagree? Send me your thoughts and I'll pass them on to Ainsley. 
This could be a great initiative to financially support these dollops. You might have noticed that Mark mentioned an Alex. Yes, this is the same Alex who emailed me about the completion of Phase 1 of the villa, which I wrote about in dollop 253, of course. Just in case you were wondering. Apologies if you're listening to the audio version of today's dollop. I suppose this probably hasn't been all that entertaining for you, but if one of today's dollop readers wants to provide some audio description of the site layout plan drawing, then I will happily include this in the audio version. I do feel as if you listeners have been left out of today's dollop a little bit, so I'll sing you a little song. Thank you. There you go. I think I've made up for it. If today's dollop is a bit rubbish, then you have the Royal Mail to blame. My microphones that I've been using to record the walking dollops broke a couple of weeks ago. Naturally, I immediately sought to replace them, given how keen I know you all are to get back out with me chatting to various eccentric Sheffielders. A couple of days ago, I received an email from the Royal Mail telling me that the microphones would be delivered today. I decided to celebrate the microphone's arrival with a much-anticipated walking dollop. But, alas, the microphones were not delivered. I then had to go out this evening, and I've only just got back in at 11.30 and I now have to quickly write a dollop instead of releasing an audio one as was my original plan and so if today's dollop is a bit rubbish and if this first paragraph is anything to go by it will be then blame the Royal Mail we were in a curry house this evening we were sitting on a corner table and we noticed that tucked behind us was a laptop and on the screen was Spotify and the name of the playlist where the Asian music coming over the speakers was being played from the playlist was called curry house classics It was a public playlist that Spotify had curated. I'd have hoped that if you're running a curry house, you might have some idea of appropriate music that you could play in your establishment, rather than lazily using a public Spotify playlist called Curry House Classics. I also wondered how many other Indian restaurants on the planet were currently playing Curry House Classics. And are these songs really Curry House Classics, or are they just popular Asian songs that have merely been thrown into a playlist? I might be doing the people at Spotify a disservice, though. I suppose there might have been an extensive survey done on thousands of curry houses all over the world and the results are compiled into the Curry House Classics playlist. And to be fair, Spotify has picked some classics. They start things off with Miani Sochlia from Tums in Nahingdeka, an excellent opera, I'm sure you'll agree. They then follow that up with uh, Cecile Malakotonke from Bardash, which, let's face it, was bound to be included, before hitting us hard with Argentun Miljau from Zahir, of course. There's a few curveballs on the list, though. They opted for Teramira Resta, you know, from uh, Awarapan, which I personally think is somewhat of a weak choice. And then there's Ai Kahaba from Zeher, which would be all very well and good, but for some insane reason, they've plucked for the Lounge Remix, which is very uninspiring. I wonder if Spotify have created playlists for other kinds of restaurants. Now that's what I call Greasy Spoon Cafe, Late Night Kebab House Hits, Chippy Anthems. Here are my suggestions for the Curry House Classics playlist. Take a chance on me by Akbar. Akbar as in the Indian restaurant chain. Korma Chameleon by Culture Club, but culture is K-U-L-C-H-A as in the Indian bread. Tiny Dansak by Elton John from the album Mad Nan Across the Water. Tiny Dancer is on the album Madman Across the Water. I personally think jokes are much funnier when you have to explain them. She's a Nan Eater by Delhi Furtado. Get Chapati Started by Pink. You might be wondering why pink is a pun, but it's it's because a lot of curry houses often use quite a bit of food colouring in the meals, so that clearly works. 
This is the closest thing to Jal Frazy I have ever seen by Katie Mel Lahore. Unfortunately, it's coming up to midnight, so I need to publish this dollop, meaning that we'll have to terminate the fun here, I'm afraid. Feel free to exercise your creative muscles and suggest some additions to my Curry House playlist. Back tomorrow, another day, another dollop. Some people did leave comments, actually, um, with suggestions. Curry House classics, right. Mavis Crumble. Don't forget that other one by Akbar, Vindaloo. I was defeated, you won the war. Why does it say that in brackets? It's in brackets that I was defeated, you won the war. I get the joke, Waterloo. Don't forget the other one by Akbar, Vindaloo. But then why does it say I was defeated, you won the war? I don't get what she's doing there. Feel free to explain, Mavis. Michael Wackington. Good to have you back, Michael. It's been a while. Oh, my favourite is Tandoori and Deliver by Adam and the Ants. And there is an adamant urinal in my local curry house. Banging. What the bloody hell is he going on about? Am I... Am I what? What does that mean? Uh, oh, my favourite is Tandoori and Deliver. I have to say, Stand and Deliver sounds nothing like Tandoori and Deliver. Tandoori and Deliver. My goodness, Michael. Tandoori and Deliver, which I think is a bit tortured, personally. Adam and the Ants. And there is an Adam Ant urinal in my local curry house. Banging. You're going to have to explain yourself. Mavis and Michael, you're going to have to explain yourselves to me. Anyway, thank you for listening.